the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. see that we are live again. Here we are on October 28th, 2018. I'm Martin Stalbretti. I'm the Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. And I'm going to switch glasses right now. I'm on the wrong set of glasses. I'm Martin Stalbretti, and we're here for another uh, session of Chalcedon Q&A and Little Meat of the Word, where we take your questions and uh, take them in advance sometimes, and we have a list that popped in over online. And then we'll take the live ones directly thereafter. So, we will start with the ones that came in live. Or rather, they came in online as we take them in the order they received. So, first come, first served. And that's how it's going to work today as well. Let's see. And I see ground control is available, which is good. Okay, first question. A little bit elaborate. Uh, his, uh, Robert, Roger Oliver came across this from in Jason Lyle's work, Keeping the Faith in the Age of Reason, Refuting Alleged Bible Contradictions. And the question is, were the Israelites to spare the trees in the countries they invaded? And 2 Kings 3.19 says no, but Exodus 20.19, actually Deuteronomy 20.19, but says yes. Bifurcation fallacy. The critic seems to think that either trees are not to be spared at all times in all battles or they'd be spared at all times in all battles, but there is a no logical reason to be restricted to merely those two options. In general, when a city was besieged and about to be captured, the Israelites were to spare fruit trees, Deuteronomy 2019. This is obviously because they would need food once they occupied the city and for future generations as well. In 2 Kings 3.19, the cities of the Moabites were not besieged and were not to be captured, but were to be utterly destroyed. There was no intention of occupying the cities and therefore no need to preserve the food, food supply. Thus, God commanded Israel to destroy such cities completely, including the trees, which is Dr. Lyle's position. I have a lot of respect for Dr. Lyle, particularly on creationist issues, but I don't believe he's correct in his analysis in this instance. Hey, from Laredo. That's good, Bill. Uh, he's trying to say that this is an exception to the rule uh, and that the, the fruit trees were simply going to be for, for fruit. But there's more to it than that. I think Dr. Restoni brings this out in his Deuteronomy chapter and his other issues about scorched earth policy respecting war. You were not to besiege uh, and attack the fruit trees because they are not men of war. You're not supposed to uh, attack the earth. The earth is not your enemy and the trees are not your enemy. You know, people are your target, those are your enemies, but not these other items. Plus, when Dr. Lyle ends the uh, statement uh, in this way, God commanded Israel to destroy such cities, in completely including the trees, that is not the correct reading of Second Kings 3.19. Uh, that's couched not in imperative language, that is, it's not a command saying you shall do this, but rather it's a prediction that the Israelites will do it. It falls short of a command. <coughs> it's simply acknowledging that the Israelites will do this. It's a whole different ballgame uh, if it's prophetic uh, versus saying that it was commanded to do that. We always have to distinguish between a moral imperative and a prediction. 
there's several interpretations as to why uh, this arose the way it did, but Lange and Poole and others have commented that, in fact, it was not a command at all, or the language would have been completely different than what was used uh, when Elisha's just talking about it. He's simply predicting what's going to happen, as opposed to commanding what's going to happen. It's not in the command form. And uh, it's been said that uh, the perhaps the keeping of the law was so in such a bad state in the times of the kings that even Elisha himself forgot the law. That's not likely to be the case at all. So uh, I think the best view on it is that, by the way, uh, there's something that, I, that uh, or there's at least a proviso here that might be considered, uh, in addition to what we've been talking about, is that the prohibition in Deuteronomy 20 is this, that you shall not um, lay the axe to the trees to turn them into siege weapons. In other words, to take a fruit tree and turn it into a weapon of war. Uh, that is part of the requirement, and so from one point of view, you could argue, well, they're not being turned into weapons of war because they've already conquered. This is just, you know, adding insult to injury, if you will, uh, but the uh, throwing up the rocks in the fields and stopping up the wells, it's a general curse being placed, but it's done, done uh, it's coming around as a result of the animosity between Moab and Israel at this point, and Judah at this point in time in, in history. So I do not believe there is a restriction, and I believe that Tarastuni is correct in indicating that <clears throat> the law is structured to show that we do not, uh, we are not at war with fruit trees. We are at war with men, and are not to be treating the elements of the earth that God belongs. You know, he, God set the fruit trees up to feed men, and therefore uh, that purpose is subverted if you're going to destroy them. And that's why Dr. Rashtuni had opposed uh, uh, and found a biblical warrant for opposing scorched earth policy and wars. Fruit trees were not to be touched. And uh, so therefore there is perhaps some truth in the fact of the matter that the uh, Israelites and the kings, by the way, you know, who were part of that, should have known better than to do that. Uh, so there's more to it than uh, Dr. Lyle indicates. Good to have you folks here from Virginia. We have everyone from all around. Anyway, that's an interesting question. Next one, also interesting. Could you explain the position held by B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, on biblical inerrancy and infallibility? Do you agree with this position? Thank you, Gerard Turner. You know, this gets interesting. There was a book, this published in 84, Evangelicals and Inerrancy, Selections from the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. It was uh, Ronald Youngblood was the editor, if you want to pick this up. Published by... Nelson. Uh, in it, Dr. Bonson has a very early essay from about 1979, Inductivism, Inerrancy, and Presuppositionalism. And so what he does is he analyzes two exponents of different views of inerrancy and infallibility. Uh, on the one hand is Daniel Fuller, who claims that he is championing Warfield's view of uh, everything being done according to induction. That is, we're going to analyze the data and have a rational process of extracting truth by induction. And then the other fellow is Clark Pinnock, who turns around and says, no, Dr. Fuller, uh, you're not following Warfield, I'm following Warfield. So they're both now attacking each other, who's the proper heir of Warfield's position on infallibility and inerrancy. And Bunsen rules on it, in essence, that they're both wrong. <laughs> they both are not able to put Warfield's program, such as they conceive of it, 
into play that induction should operate at all levels because both these men introduce a level of hidden presuppositionalism because neither of them want to start with a possible neutral position that the Bible is a pack of lies. Since they've already taken that off the table, they've already set the table and, and have a hidden baggage, uh, which means that their pure inductionist approaches are false. So, Dr. Uh, Bonson takes a pox on both your houses approach. Now, if um, Warfield were that far off in his view, then it's not likely that in this book, which is the uh, Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, which was um, a compilation of essays from the Oxford series published in between 1929 and 1932, um, these were reprinted by Presbyterian Reformed and they were shrunk. They basically took the best of those ten volumes and reduced them to five volumes. This is one of those five volumes that was produced. And guess who they got to write the hefty introduction to this? And that would be Dr. Van Til, who saw nothing but value in what Dr. Warfield brought to the table. Uh, and what, is, what Van Til does, which is very significant, saying we are standing in a historic stream of development and we should not uh, conclude that any particular spot along the way has arrived. We don't know that for an absolute fact. We should actually see this as continually uh, fine-tuning and clarifying and getting rid of the uh, scales from our eyes as we look at the issues of inerrancy and infallibility, infallibility applying to the, the sentences and inerrancy to the meaning of the scripture. And he says, and what Warfield brings to the table is significant because uh, Warfield brings what? He's a Calvinist, and he believes in a self-contained God who's not dependent on anything else. And so you have a self-contained God, that way you have a self-attesting scripture. So in essence, all the pieces necessary for a modern, uh, hardcore view of inerrancy and infallibility are already present in Warfield, and that is a um, fruit field <laughs> ready to, to pick. Uh, we should go ahead and grab these because you cannot build on any other foundation than what Warfield has provided. Now, this doesn't mean we agree with Warfield on his approach to apologetics um, as a rationalistic enterprise. Uh, we think that Kuiper set in motion a more consistent approach. It wasn't really made consistent until Van Til and Bonson moved into the picture. Uh, but the, the up upshot is the same, that Warfield was not inconsistent, but he not, didn't actually push the process or the antithesis all the way. That took for Van Til and others to then take these huge blocks that, of thought that Warfield had carved out with his massive intellect, if you will, uh, operating all alone there in Princeton in this area, and saying these rocks make a fantastic foundation for the proper doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility. Now, what of course happened in Christendom is that the 1930s and 40s and 50s happened, and we have, uh, uh, which is after Warfield's death, which occurred in 1921, and we have people like Bernard Ram, um, German probably is pronounced Ram, but R-A-M-M, -M, writing books like Science and Scripture, where now we're going to start chipping away at the doctrine of infallibility and inerrancy in order to uh, satisfy rationalistic requirements from science, for example. Well, we're going to now say, don't take this literally, don't take that literally, um, this is poetry, this is poetic, and, and soon you have lost your resurrection on Easter morning. It doesn't take long to go down that road. The fact that uh, Westminster Seminary under Machen was dead set on promoting infallibility is evident in the symposium, the infallible word, sorry it's backwards, the symposium, by members of the faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary. And uh, it's a, a good solid exposition, not nearly as strong as Van Til's introduction to the other work, but still indicating that the Westminster scholars were trying to build on what Warfield started. Um, 
and that's a good starting point. So uh, it's not that I disagree or uh, not. It's not that I, can, I cannot truly say I disagree with what Warfield did because that's what I'm, I would be saying. I disagree to the concept of a self-authenticating scripture, of a self-contained God, of uh, a God who, whose authority is not usurped in any area, not, not uh, in the moral domain, not in the epistemological domain of the mind. Uh, all these things Warfield did set in motion. Now, it doesn't mean that his final solutions to these things were final. Uh, uh, and that we can necessarily rest on his laurels. That's why Van Til properly said what he provided was the starting points, not the end points, the starting points for discussion, serious discussion of actually dealing with inerrancy and how God then, uh, his authority and his sovereignty extend to the domain of knowledge. And that's fundamental, and Warfield got that part right. So to that extent, I think we have to acknowledge the true nature of what Warfield achieved in discussing and dealing with the infallibility and inerrancy issues. Um, people were trying to attack the infallibility of the Bible and its inerrancy, and Warfield therefore was regarded as a stalwart defender of the faith uh, because he pushed back on this, and he pushed back on this uh, not in its own right, but because of what it said about the God who wrote the uh, scriptures. And so he argued from the Lord himself and his nature uh, to a scripture that is self-contained. If you read Dr. Rushduni's point, everyone has a notion of where the infallible word lies. Everyone, whether you're an atheist or humanist or agnostic or pantheist, all of you have a doctrine of infallibility and who speaks the infallible word. In the scripture, it's God who speaks the infallible word. In all other systems, men or ma one man or several men speak the infallible word. And uh, so we always have a doctrine of infallibility built into every system because that's your stopgap for all knowledge. Except for, I suppose, the, the total um, person who believes, I'm not sure that anyone exists, and, and not even himself. Okay, so now if you live in totally paralyzed by doubt, you're probably not going to be a factor in the world stage. Just aren't. All right, next question. Given the fact that statism intentionally produces schisms, or schisms, in order to maintain control, and uh, not by, by the way, I don't necessarily agree 100% with that, that statism uh, always produces schisms, but it tends to because it's advantageous for most populations. So it's not always a given, but uh, we can allow the premise for the sake of getting through the question, otherwise I spend all my time qualifying <laughs> questions and whatnot. Uh, to maintain, maintain control, and the military and the police serve to enforce that hold, can you discuss how a Christian man can serve in the military or police force and not enforce humanistic laws? And if the answer is can't be done, doesn't that leave those areas dominated by those who are not in service to Christ? I think John the Baptist had occasion to deal with this, right? It's in Luke, second chapter. And I think he gave uh, wise counsel. When this question had come up. Ah, Luke 3, actually, verse 14. The soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. So just like beforehand he was dealing with the publicans, tax collectors, what shall we do? And he says, and he says Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And to the soldiers he gave counsel. So in other words, the it wasn't that there was going to be a revolution going on, but rather a regeneration that's going to be present. The, the leaven is going to be cast into the dough, 
and transform it over time, over a process of time by which the gospel moves into these areas and transforms them. And those become regenerated or reconstructed domains. And that's the actual mission. Uh, and it's a slow process, but it's an effectual one. At last by the power of it shall all be leavened, we're told in the parable in Matthew 13. Dr. Rashtuni was very fond of this passage in Mark 4.28. You know, first the, um, the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. And he says it's a process by which the kingdom of God advances and advances into each domain, including the military domain and the, the police domain and the other areas. Uh, it's a process. In fact, when he deals with this passage, first the blade, which uh, a little history there. I think I, my very first message in 2008 when we had the Evening with Chalcedon events across the country, I chose that text uh, and was built on what Dr. Rushdoney said. Then uh, later on, Tim Yarbrough published an article in Chalcedon's Faith for All of Life, which featured on the cover, First the Blade, showing there's a fundamental premise of how uh, the truth of God's Word penetrates uh, in a regenerative versus a revolutionary throw, kick the tables over, kick the chessboard over kind of thing. That's not the way it works. It actually is, let's transform the game as it's in progress. Uh, so that's big. And as Rashtuni observes, he says, if we look at the parable of the sower, he says rapid growth is false growth. The revolutionary path is always a false path. Because now you've yielded to the principle that you can use, say, terrorism in the f um, service of a good cause, which was the position uh, at Harper's Ferry, right? With John Brown, the world's first terrorist, he said it's okay to kill people on a good cause. In other words, to force things to a revolutionary high-speed uh, change that he demanded, uh, and not on any other grounds. So, uh, rapid growth, like Rushton, he says, is often false growth. But when the kingdom of God is working, it's like the glacier pushing forward and transforming all things that are not conformed to itself. I think it's, uh, the phrase is wonderful, that the kingdom of God, or the word of God, and it's even better, but the same concept, the word of God is the solvent of all institutions not based on itself. That includes the military profession, that includes every other profession. Because the questioner continued on with his question, along the same lines, are there any professions, medical, legal, educational, where the same issues will arise, obey or lose your job? And I would say yes. Uh, I think that the domain of sin is such that they want conformity, and, and that is achieved by coercion. And if they can coerce your mind, all the better. But if they can't, they'll certainly coerce the body, and they will then say either you do this or you won't buy anything, right? You're going to be denied a job, and therefore you can't feed your family. So sometimes there can be a high price to pay for doing the right thing. Now, make sure it's the right thing and not an extreme form that's not necessary. Now, that's if you're taking more upon yourself than the Bible requires, I think that's important. Even when they dealt with, dealt with this question in Acts 15, he said, this seemed good to the Holy Spirit and upon and to us not to lay upon you any more than these things. So we should not lay upon anyone's conscience any more than the law of God would stipulate. And then keep in mind the way in which the law, uh, the, the kingdom of God advances through each of these things to reconstruct them. Because the time is coming when all thoughts will be taken captive to the beginnings of Christ. But it's also going to be achieved by Christians obeying God's law, not simply being a firebrand and an attacker. Uh, thank you. There we have uh, Ground Control put up Tim Yarbrough's excellent article uh, on First the Blade, indicating the mode and the rate of speed usually of which things go, where God's growing his kingdom and this is where it's, it's a huge docu uh, idea. It's laid out in the book of Luke. The kingdom of God cometh not by observation. If anyone says, we're going to suddenly see the, the, the kingdom of God appear explosively in the world and everyone's going to see it, they're lying. 
The kingdom of God cometh not by observation. Human eyes cannot see it. It's unobservable. The, the rate at which it comes and, and is advanced is relatively slow, and as therefore its coming is a process in time. And sometimes it lasts longer than a single generation can see. So generation after generation, if you look at the big picture, which means you need to have a historical view, you will see the kingdom of God moving like a glacier and shoving everything out of the way and transforming the world in the, as it moves forward. And with that, you see with the eye of faith that we're living in the days of the primitive church right now and not the last days church as it has been commonly misunderstood. All right, next question. This, I think, also came from Roger Oliver. In Foundations of Social Order, pages 5 and 6, Rushtuni writes, Nothing then can be more alien to the creed and to biblical faith than the dialectical separation of faith and history. Trying to understand and explain in English what he means by the dialectical separation of history and faith is, is, is a challenge. So what does that mean? And dialectical uh, tension means that you hold these two things that are incompatible. And so it's treating faith and history as incompatible, in which to say history is the real world and faith is some other world, maybe a spiritual world in your mind, at some other dimensional plane, and these things don't really mix, is the notion. Uh, and so we say the biblical faith has nothing to do with history. History, therefore, is exempt from any claims made upon it by faith because they are in dialectical tension. Uh, the faith does not speak into history. It doesn't transform history. It doesn't uh, uh, control and guide it. And yet, here's this phrase out of First John, right? This is the victory that overcomes the world, even your faith. So, in fact, <laughs> the faith does have a direct impact upon the world and upon history, and history is being shaped by men of faith, and is also being shaped negatively by those who don't have faith, and they represent God's justice uh, in action through judgment, and then the, the redeemed, they uh, represent how history works in terms of grace and redemption. So both aspects are going to be emphasized, and ultimately the final generations will be all wheat and no more tares. Uh, the tares had to be resurrected to face the white throne judgment. So that's the whole point. Uh, and it's convenient for people to make this separation, saying, well, you know, you can be a Christian on Sunday morning, but the rest of the time you need to be, function as an atheist and a humanist because uh, the faith does not speak to history, history doesn't speak to faith. We're not going to attack the historicity of uh, what you think happened on Resurrection Sunday if you don't tell us what to do over here in the State House and the legislature of this nation. So it's just put this big fat divide, this wall of separation, just like they talk about between uh, church and state. It's the same thing here between history and faith. So they will say Christianity is an, an ahistorical faith, which means it has nothing to do with this domain down here of flesh and blood. It's the Yoda approach. You know, God doesn't care about uh, the force. has got nothing about this um, um, crude matter, he says, and he pinches uh, Luke's shoulder as if to uh, mock mere creation, mere materials. And yet, uh, that's not the biblical position at all. Had God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living soul and it was all good. And so man is a unity and he is flesh and blood and soul and spirit if you want to go that far. So the point there is that it's a very different notion of the nature of man and the nature of reality. In one, uh, God's dominion controls everything that goes on in history and it, therefore it is literally his story as the phrase goes. In the other view, history is under man's control directly and God's got nothing to say to it, to speak to it. And since that's a convenient fiction for the humanist to have uh, be, uh, get the questions to evacuate and withdraw from history so that the only thing that is of concern to them is Marxist principles in operation, uh, they're very scared of the idea that the faith can come in and change the course of history. Yeah. It's been done too many times and they want to block and prevent this and one good way is try to convince you in advance not to bother. 
uh, and to they say that this is an acceptable dialectic. And so lots of the uh, liberation theologians in Latin America promote this dialectical position. So all that to mean there is no wall between the two. In fact, uh, God invades history continually because it's in his fist. That's the truth. All right, next question. If we uh, could assume that all adult Christians have the character qualities needed to potentially succeed in self-employment, then what portion of God's people are, who are of sound mind should be self-employed versus employed in the service of another person's business? In other words, should intellectually capable Christians ideally always seek self-employment? And is poor character the only thing that should really stand in the way of that, or does that make too much of self-employment as a goal? So uh, that's an interesting question. What if everyone was self-employed? What if you thought that was the end game in terms of every man under his own vine and fig tree with his own uh, laptop <laughs> and his own business on Amazon? Is that, that the goal? Well, unfortunately, it turns out that certain things, unless you robotize them and automate them stupendously, uh, are going to require uh, folks that uh, are willing to be faithful in little things before they're given bigger things to handle. And not everyone's going to be at the handling the big, big thing. So there's a certain uh, spirit, uh, entrepreneurial spirit, that is a, a positive thing, but I'm not sure that all are called. I don't think everyone has got that gift. Some people are more than willing to be the under oarsmen that people have translated that phrase about, you know, Paul said what he was in the kingdom of God, that uh, he was willing to do certain things. It was a big thing, for example, uh, when John the Baptist spoke of Christ, who sh who, the latch of whose shoe I'm unworthy to unlatch, you know, who, you know the clasp of the shoe. Uh, or the way that Elisha was talked up in Second Kings 3, the very passage we were talking about. He says, hey, Elisha's with us. He's the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Well, pouring water on someone's hands is a servitude, but nonetheless, if it's a big guy that you're pouring waters on the hands, that's a big deal, right? And so if we're the ambassadors of the living God, that's still a big deal no matter what your position is. Paul, uh, he might have been an entrepreneurial tent maker, I don't know but he might have been putting his tents uh, and uh, selling them through the Amazon at the time. <laughs> Who knows? The point is, uh, it was a subordinate function, and he wanted to work with his hand. And we have a change in how uh, the economy is working. If it's so information-based as it tends to be today, then you're going to want to look at, say, the writings of, um, and lectures of a Byron Reese, B-Y-R-O-N-R-E-E-S-E, -E, uh, who is one of the few Christian futurologists out there who has a grasp on the way that technology is a wonderful tool for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Uh, but that still begs the question, how are you going to build, say, 50-inch screens? And that usually takes a crew in a factory. And if you're going to say, well, if you're not, see, that's the thing I would be concerned with. If we're going to say, if you don't own your own business, then you have an inherently slavish mentality. I think that's a false statement. It means that you're in a position to uh, show yourself uh, diligent in your labors. And we're told there's a promise in Scripture, right? The hand of the diligent shall bear rule. And you see a man diligent in his labors, he shall stand before kings. So uh, being, look at Bach. Bach was always in service of someone else, except for this one little detail is that he always knew that he was serving God first through the person of the person he was uh, being paid to do work for. So he always made sure all his labor was unto the Lord. And once you have that dynamic in place and you take it seriously and are conscientious about it, all, it, it changes the picture dramatically. Um, you, you could be the world's best sweeper, as the, world, as the phrase goes. I, I believe there was a famous uh, sermon to this effect or a point being made. That was Martin Luther King Jr., perhaps. I'm not necessarily promoting all of his theology, but saying that he had an interesting point there, that he was extending the principles that Solomon laid out in terms of that. Nonetheless, 
if you are gifted and have the drive and the fire in the belly to become an entrepreneur and, just, and to put your family into that place, uh, it will certainly have a contagious effect on your sons. Uh, good and bad. Some might decide, boy, I sure don't want to be in this business. I see I was dragging dad and mom down. <laughs> or they might say, I, can, I don't want to do exactly the same thing in, in my area. Uh, so it gets interesting, to say the least. But the main thing is that all things be done unto Christ and uh, unto edification for the building up. If you're going to um, strike it on your own, there's going to be risks involved. Uh, and if you're prepared for this risk, if you're willing to count the cost, go for it. It's often misunderstood when we hear that phrase, count the cost, that it means uh, if the cost doesn't add up properly, if you can't justify it, hold back. That's not even remotely what the message is in that passage in Scripture. If you actually read it in context, it means, yes, you're not going to be able to meet the cost, so you have to go forward in faith with God uh, fighting for you uh, because God requires us to be faithful in these things. So it means that the, the expansion of the kingdom of God in that point is not going to be um, based merely on human strength, but rather on something else. Because not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, that the capstone is going to be put in place in history over time. But these are very good questions, and I don't think that uh, it's a lack of character to be working for someone else. Uh, I currently work for someone else. I am not an entrepreneur uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I have a, back there in the cork board a bunch of code that uh, makes sure that this business operates. So I'm a part of a cog in a wheel, and it, they rely on me. And if I happen to fail in my task, then terrible things happen out there in the field with you know 30 um, plumbing and AC trucks running around. Uh, not knowing where to go next. So, uh, if I am faithful steward, then God's going to trust me with a similar cog somewhere down the line on the other side. So, th that's all based on uh, what you And this, uh, by the way, also gives me something else. And by working for someone else, uh, and I know there's probably folks that are going to criticize it, but that's fine. It shows that we're still looking and dealing with these questions. Uh, it frees me up in other areas. I could be doing a tremendous amount of study uh, for the Word of God that I would not otherwise have the time for if I was an entrepreneur, because now my balance of my priorities is going to be shifted, just like First Corinthians 7. If you are unmarried, you're going to have a different set of priorities than if you are married. If you're an entrepreneur, by implication, you're going to have a different set of pri uh, priorities since you run the business uh, than someone who works for someone else, who now the burden is on his boss, and I think the prayer burden is also praying for the boss and for the business you're in. So in either case, you're going to be wanting to lift up uh, businesses and uh, enterprises uh, and move forward with that. I know that uh, Mark Rashtuni was participated, along with Tim Riabro, at a conference on the West Coast uh, related to uh, business. And so there, we like to encourage Christians to consider this and to move forward in this area um, because uh, they can establish dominion when you are the entrepreneur. That's another interesting thing. I'm not necessarily establishing dominion here uh, by being a cord warrior in a particular language that will one day be obsolete. Uh, I'm, I am part of a, of, a, of a chain that is concerned with things going on right now, current crises and current issues and static. But if you are an entrepreneur, you might be able to set in motion things that are future-oriented that the person who is uh, working for someone else might not. Now, ironically, lots of times in history, we have examples where someone working for someone else suddenly discovered, like, nylon. <laughs> Oops, that, that was something that was unexpected. Uh, but that's serendipity in play in God's providence. So uh, oftentimes we hope that the uh, inno true innovator gets the true credit for it. Uh, that's not normally the case. When I was, for the one year I was in college, 
at Harvey Mudd, we were told that were you to invent anything while you were a student here, even if you did it on a weekend, it belongs to the college. And so you sign the papers. So the property rights, intellectual property rights for you, say you invented the cure, uh, anti-gravity, whoever it was, it's not yours anymore. You've already signed it away in advance as it belongs to the institution, even if you've invented it on your own on your weekend, because they own your time. And so if, you're, if that bothers you, and probably should, because I don't believe it's a moral standing, uh, then uh, realize that virtually every institution, institution in America, educational institution, is structured that way, that anything done while you're at work uh, there or employed by them, uh, they will lay claim to unless you have a prior agreement to the opposite. So in that sense, maybe you are a slave, something to consider. So and all that to say, it's not as simple and cut and dried as either side's going to make it. Uh, one can make a case for both sides, but um, everyone is gifted differently. Hello, David. Good to have you here. Yes, thank you. Reconstruction of family business. Right. Uh, Mark, actually, I think, wrote a brief article about that, uh, about his experience there. So Ground Control put the link there. You should always uh, click on the links and see what's going on. If not during our broadcast, because you're trying to stay up with me, and I'm trying to stay up with me, <laughs> and certainly afterward, because they put up there so that you can dig a little deeper than the answers that I'm providing here on the fly. Exodus recounts how Moses survived the attempt by Pharaoh to reduce the number of Hebrew male birds. Additionally, there was a mandate to throw infant boys into the Nile. Would this not have added to a true shortage of men, making the requirements to make bricks without straw an even greater burden? There is no mention of the male-female members in the Exodus. Is it known, in other words, the numbers, ratio of male to female? Is it known if the order was ever rescinded? It's my understanding that uh, uh, it was... It basically failed because the Hebrew midwives weren't following through. Now, any given day, uh, you would have the issue of how many were born, which were hidden away, how many were thrown in the Nile, and for how long this lasted. Uh, if you lost a, a whole year or two's worth of uh, male children, uh, is it going to still be a problem of making bricks without straw 20, 30 years from now, if there are not that many men? Uh, that's an interesting question. Part of it depends on how successful the Hebrew midwives were in their counter-operation, and I don't think they would have you know, been concerned about it so much. Uh, they were very effectual in dealing with the problem. So though the command was there, and some obviously did die, uh, I don't believe that it was so such that uh, we had a huge imbalance between male and female so that uh, we had a bunch of women there who weren't, couldn't find a husband, for example. It wasn't sustained that long, and nor was it sustainable if you were trying to maintain your strength. They wanted simply to control the increasing numbers. Uh, it was kind of a form of population control. They didn't want zero population, or they would have killed everyone, but they wanted to control the amount. So it said if we keep the numbers in Goshen down to this level, which is our eastern gate, uh, we would be in a better position to um, uh, handle any kind of uprisings in the future, which assumed that there was no God that was going to help in the uprising, as would occur uh, you know, 80 years later under Moses. So, under a different pharaoh, by the way. So the first pharaoh got that got wrong is thought he thought was going to deal with his domain, and it was actually was a pharaoh 80 years further on that was going to confront the living God face to face and be the worse off for it. Okay. In what way can we say that creation groans? Do trees and flowers and oceans groan, or is this just figurative? Uh, that's an interesting question because, of course, these are inanimate objects, and by that we're, we're to say that uh, the trees and the rocks and the flowers don't that we now know of have a soul. But the futility to which it's subjected and to which the whole creation groans and travail is that decay and that death. And in other words, the futility of dying 
and decaying and rotting. So, and so the de de decay and the erosion and stuff, those are all premised on uh, applied to the mineral kingdom. And then, of course, the plant kingdom suffers death continually. Uh, so all this particular futility would not arise. So when we finally get to the end game, say Revelation 21-22, we see that the, uh, there's no winter. We talked about this last week, no winter and spring. Uh, so there's not a cycle of death. And the trees that line the river of life, they give their fruit in every single season. And so people would be consuming the fruit of it, uh, fruit of the tree of life. And uh, that would be sustaining to everybody. So the, the trees would be fruitful and there would be no loss of tree or cutting down of trees or anything like that. Everything's made out of gold and silver. Uh, whether those are literal or spiritual doesn't matter at the moment. But the point is, uh, there is a groaning, and it's evidence in how the whole creation suffers. You actually need what I, Peter Ellison and I, Pastor Ellison, had a discussion said, what we need is a doctrine of roadkill. And it sounds like a peculiar turn of phrase until you think about it a little bit more and saying, yeah, as a matter of fact, if our God is sovereign over everything, he's sovereign over this, and there must be a doctrine that helps us explain it and put it in this proper context. And there's a groaning and travail where a vehicle at high speed encounters animal unwittingly crossing the road at the same time, be it a possum or raccoon or skunk or deer here in Texas, and then the, the, what happens? So where does this part play in the, in the kingdom of God and the history of the world? It's part of the subjection of futility to vanity, to, you know, to meaninglessness. It's a meaningless death unless it's put in the context of what Christ is attempting to achieve, which is to change all that. So they shall neither hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the knowledge of the Lord shall be full of the, rather the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11, 9. So, so I think that's the, the sense in which it is. It's not so much that a, a river can groan or creak um, uh, or a mountain. Oh, by the way, uh, there was something else that was coming up here. Uh, this reminded me of the very first question we dealt with, which was from the fruit trees, and saying, uh, God's only cares about the fruit trees that um, where people would, would eat of them. So if you're not going to eat of them, it's okay to destroy them. This is, I think, an erroneous position based on a premise in the book of Job. In Job, uh, there's a verse that says that God sendeth the rain into the wilderness where no man is. And as uh, Andrew Sandlin, I think, correctly pointed out, this is one of the most important verses in the Bible because it means that uh, God's concerns are bigger than man. To think it's God's only worried about man, and he's not worried about places where man is not, is simply demonstrably false from Scripture, because God sends the rain into the wilderness where no man is to water the wilderness, to take care and feed the, the eagles, young, and whatnot. And all these animals out there are God's concern as much as we are. Now, they're not made in the image of God. It doesn't mean that God's not going to send the rain and provide for the needs of his creation, because he sees that all of his creation, which he regarded as very good, is taken care of, but now it's in a fallen state, and therefore it, it groans in travail, um, looking forward to and searching back forward to the liberation of the sons of God, which is happens when we reverse the curse by walking in God's law, and that process is completed in, in the consummation, but it can certainly be pushed back quite a ways based on what we read in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65. Here's a prophet of the future, if there ever was one, was Isaiah. Okay. David Little had a question, and if there's some before that his, I will go, scroll back, but his is up right now. Hey, Toby, good to have you with us. Which Rashtuni book do you recommend as a good primer or primer to introduce a non-believer, non-believer to Christian Reconstruction? Right, that's an interesting one. Uh, 
You know, there's something interesting about his political writings that people catch on to uh, if they're non believer uh, and, and or his historical writings. Dr. Rashtuni, uh, there's a story of him preaching at a church. I think it was somewhere in northern, northern half of California. And the way the story is told is that uh, uh, he was a guest lecturer at this church. And a woman had brought an unsaved friend to church that morning. It was the one chance she said, I can maybe get an altar call and all this good stuff, and my, my friend is going to respond to this evangelistic sermon that's going to pop down the line from the guest speaker. And guess what? Dr. Rashtuni started talking about history from the books by the Chronicles or Kings. And of course, the entire time, the woman who brought her unsaved friend was seething and angry and saying, what a wasted opportunity. I bring my One time I get to bring someone here who needs to hear the gospel instead to hear all this dry history stuff. And so she was fit to be tied about the wasted opportunity where the gospel wasn't preached properly in her opinion. But at the end of the message, the, her friend, unsaved, made a beeline to Dr. Rashtuni to talk with him. Turned out, uh, unbeknownst to the person who invited her, that she had an abiding interest in history and there was something in the hook that what Rashtuni was saying that caught her eye, or in her ear, in her soul. And it was the means by which she was pulled into the kingdom of God. God used this particular means as the end that he had already beforehand appointed to call his elect servant in. So the woman who made such a big deal about the missed opportunity was wrong. That lady may not have responded to anything other than a teaching on history that didn't sound evangelistic except this, that the entering in of thy word bringeth light, the scripture says. And so there's evangelistic power every time the word of God is preached. Jesus even made this point. The words that I speak unto you are spirit, he tells the disciples. They're not just vibrations in the air. There's more to them. They're, it is resonating because if we're made in the image of God, then we respond to the word of God because uh, it's also uh, the work of the law is hidden in the heart. Not the law per se, but the work of the law, conscience, and it can awaken things in us. And God uses different mechanisms. So we don't have a one-size-fits-all gospel proclamation. That's wrong. The four spiritual laws created a fiction by being propagated the way they were. And so Rashtuni kind of blew the lid off this by bringing someone to the kingdom of God through a lecture on his second chronicle, say. How is that possible? Because God's bigger than your expectations and you can't be put in a box. And so Dr. Rashtuni realizes that the word of God is effectual even if it's a, you're preaching off of an obscure verse somewhere and can awaken things. So sometimes I find myself handing off a copy of Politics of Guilt and Pity or a Law and Liberty uh, or a, a, a similar book. One individual got saved by reading his commentary on Exodus that I handed off to the, to the fellow. He was interested in that. He wasn't interested in anything else and in, in all the Christian talk. But that interested him, and for some reason that was the, the way that God got his, the, uh, the camel's nose under the tent, uh, humanly speaking, because of course God knows his own and he's going to regenerate that individual. But he also points the means that I'm going to, after he reads this book, I'm going to change the man's heart. Okay, so um, a primer on Christian Reconstruction certainly would be something like Law and Liberty, because the concepts there are very, very big and people start to grasp what's going on there. Uh, there are a few other books of his that sometimes resonate. Um, and the new series, which is Good Morning Friends, even though they're small snippets, um, they are very, very compelling and concentrated bites of information and, and, and moral power in each one. And, and so lots of times it's kind of like a, a, a barrage of bullets knocking through the armor uh, and penetrating hardened minds and hearts. See now, Bill Evans has a posted item. 
Dr. Kenneth Talbot told me that RJ Rastuni was not in favor of Operation Rescue and their particular form of civil disobedience, nor the South secession from the U.S. If this was the case, for instance, consistency's sake, was uh, the view that the colonies were unjustified in the secession from Great Britain. Would you please comment, I think? Well, uh, he saw the rebellion uh, against, well, or as a counter-revolution, American Revolution, or a counter-revolution because he said it was a matter of the king versus parliament and then their respective obligations not being met. So I think we've um, put out here the, um, at least twice, the Journal of Christian Reconstructions that were dealt with the American Revolution and things on that order. So uh, that'd be a one area to consider. Now, it is true that he opposed Operation Rescue uh, tactics, not necessarily the, the heart of it, but he, he said he didn't believe that you should move to illegal means until you've exhausted all the legal means. And his view is you hadn't even come close to exhausting the legal means for fighting and pushing back against abortion. And so this was his objection, that we entered the do lawless domain way ahead of time, way before we had a warrant to do it. He also believed that the text that's often used um, to justify it about you saw someone being hauled away to be killed and you didn't lift a finger, he says, is not applicable to this particular uh, case. He, he, his exposition of the passage, and it's justified by certainly a, a majority of scholars into the 1800s, uh, would not have applied to the abortion case. And he said there would be different principles uh, that would be applicable to that, but not this particular verse, which would then justify you know, jumping in the middle and, and uh, shooting. Uh, you know, so, so the point is, again, not a revolutionary approach, but rather <clears throat> a regenerative approach uh, to dealing with, with that issue. That said, uh, there's a shift in tactics that I think is important to consider uh, because too much of um, pro-lifeism is now entrenched and seems to have a, too much of a symbiotic relationship with its own enemy. In other words, they're keeping up the problem because they are opposing um, legislation that would be decisive. Um, they actually, some of them, here in Texas, it's really the case that some of the best legislation that's being proposed that would halt abortion is opposed most vociferously and strenuously by pro-lifers. So what's going on here? Now, now why would we be doing, having a policy that, that would, on face of it, persist? It's because incrementalism as a system should not be absolutized. It might have some merit, but not as an absolute standard. It's not. It's merely a tactic. Um, and therefore, if you make the tactic, the strategy, you know, the long-term thing is going to be the tail wagging the dog. And this creates all sorts of moral chaos out there. So uh, it is true uh, in so far as that's concerned. Also, I think Dr. Rashtuni moved back and forth in terms of the, the, the war between the states. Uh, and you can get his picture of it in the final sections of his American history tapes. So you can evaluate what he says about it uh, at that point and his views. Uh, but they're not so easily reduced to a single statement that he opposed this or he opposed that. Uh, it's more complex than that. Not that it's nuanced, because people always think that nuance means he's being evasive. No, nuance means he's taking several factors into account, saying sometimes there are no good choices. Uh, this is what he said when he dealt with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. He said he had no good choices in front of him, but we want to condemn him whatever choice he would have made would have looked bad. And uh, Rashtuni was not willing to say that that would have been the case. It might be a weakness on his part, might be a strength. Right now, all we can do is fight over it. There you go, American History, 1865. Let's see, uh, another question popping up anywhere. Got that one answered. 
Oh, there you go. Let's see, any books, articles on the Church Fathers and Post Mill? Well, uh, the book to get on this topic from Rushtuni certainly would be Foundations of Social Order, the Creeds and Council of the Early Churches, and they dealt with the uh, element of how uh, the leaven was spreading into the world and the consequences uh, at the social level. So when we talk about the foundations of social order, what kind of world will you have? What kind of nation will you have? What kind of city will you build? Uh, and will it be on a hill or will it be cursed? And uh, how does the church take the Christ, the doctrine of the Christ, and apply it? And by the way, while they're doing that, the world is trying to grab that doctrine of the Christ and fit it square peg into a round hole into its version of what Christ really means. Uh, and so they usurp and uh, accommodate and reappropriate uh, Christian principles and rewrite them to serve their political needs and push it back out. Uh, so we have the Magnificat of Mary, right, in the book of Luke, where she talks about uh, God um, humbling the proud and, and the mighty. Well, kings don't like that kind of talk, right? And so all that stuff had to be softened. Uh, uh, if the king had any handle on the translation. King James didn't much care the, for how forthright the Geneva Bible put these things into English, so the authorized version kind of softened up the talk, which means that there's always a problem when the Word of God, which is a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces, comes into play uh, on the political domain. And so there are political and social ramifications for who Christ is, and that in him, uh, we have the uniting of the priestly and the kingly domains. Uh, and what kings believe is that they are in this big ladder of being, the scale of being, and they're more superior and they have a divine right to rule over us and have absolute standards. And the law of God kind of wipes all this out. Uh, they believe they are the bridge between heaven and earth, right? Uh, the, there's no name under, given under heaven by which men might be saved, but that of Augustus Caesar, as coinage with the era said in the, that period of time. So they believe in salvation politically. And so if the faith, the Christology that's laid out in, and, and it moves century by century forward in that book by Rashtuni, Foundations of uh, Social Order, uh, we see that the truth is that Christ is fully man and fully God, but without intermixture or confusion. See. By having intermixture and confusion, that meant that perhaps if uh, a, a king could also be Christ-like uh, and share in divine attributes, but if we have this huge ontological gap that's unbridgeable between creation, the creator and the creation on here, what we're part of, then no king can insert himself in the middle and say, I rule over you as because I'm somewhere higher between God and man. No, you're not. You're just men. And uh, therefore, this huge fixed gap is important, and only Christ personally bridges that gap between God and man in his own person and no one else. It's a unique one-time event that shapes all of history, explains everything that happened before, and shapes everything that happens after his coming into the world as the true person who is fully man and fully God without confusion or intermixture of the two natures. And since there's no, and this is where the Chalcedon doctrine uh, arose in 451 at that particular church council. And it was huge because it meant that certain ideas like men becoming gods was falsified, and the king being God on earth, that was falsified. So the Galian notion that dominates modern politics is falsified by the Council of Chalcedon. So it was uh, Mary Wortham in her analysis of uh, Molly Wortham, W-O-R-T-H-E-N, I wrote some material about her analysis of uh, 
uh, Christian Reconstruction, and uh, she talks about the problems that Chalcedon presents. And she, who is uh, not necessarily on our side, but an honest observer in many respects, said that uh, Rushdoony was alone in seeing the political implications of the early church councils, but he says, in actual fact, he was right. These were life and death issues back then. And Rushdoony's right and his critics are wrong. Uh, that he's actually being the faithful expositor of what was going on in the first five centuries. So, if you take it out of the mouth of someone like Dr. Worthen, who's not a friend of Christian Reconstruction, that Dr. Rishtuni got it right, that commends the book to me. That seems like it's a strong praise. And that's why we'd talk about some of the Church Fathers and uh, the post-millennial doctrine. Athanasius, of course, always is big if you're going to deal with that, and I know that in one of the journals of Christian Reconstruction, there was a, um, a biography, perhaps even an award-winning biography, because they gave out awards uh, for contributions, particularly from young writers back in the day, in the 70s and early 80s. Someone prepared a uh, biography of Athanasius. It was very, very powerful. Athanasius comes into play in the writings of David Chiltern as a positive figure there. Let's see, any other? I'm going, well, I'm scrolling all the way back almost to the beginning, so I'm betting that uh, I have not caught any. Okay, so ground control is, um, let me check my time, nine more minutes, wow. Hour went by fast. Andy Eckert asks, Martin, what's an example of where the verse about saving those being dragged away would apply? Would that be for something like a kidnapping in progress? Well, uh, certainly that would, would apply. Uh, being dragged away, if you uh, saw, uh, if you knew for a fact that someone was innocent and, and you, uh, and of course you should have brought that up at the trial, but sometimes things move along without a trial, right? Uh, that's what lynch mobs do. Uh, due justice, due process is denied, and therefore uh, you don't uh, evaluate the case on its merits. It's evaluated on um, emotional concerns, racial concerns of all things. Uh, and, of course, at that point, the law of God is fundamental in this. Thou shalt not have any respect of persons. So if you know that there's been a violation of these principles, perhaps it is, in fact, appropriate then to literally intervene, even your body, in the way uh, of, a ma of a murder in progress, because then it becomes a lawless taking of life, uh, well, for certain, uh, uh, and it's at the behest of the government that's supposed to protect life and now is harming life, is, uh, is doing exactly that. Uh, ironically, that's kind of the point of the Hippocratic Oath, too, with the doctor. So you can see it gets complex here. But yeah, Dr. Rashtuni had a different view of the, the passage about uh, being taken away because, um, and I have to examine his reasonings because I haven't looked at them in some 30 years, but. Uh, they're, they're fairly compelling, and he certainly was able to base it on writings of earlier expositors. So the question is not, oh, here's a verse that's a fantastic fit for us, we should jump on it and use it. But he would be a little bit more judicious and say, let's make sure we're in context with it before we grab the verse and run around willy-nilly with it, even for a good cause, like saving the life of the unborn. Uh, he, he was even saying that we, we must uh, operate within biblical parameters even in opposing evil. We do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome it with good. Uh, and this concluding thought of Romans 12 should dominate our thinking even on that matter. Uh, and, and yet, Dr. Rashtuni had many friends who were Operation Rescue operatives. Uh, some of his closest friends were participated in it, but lots of them nuanced their approach. They're more willing to um, picket legal forms of Operation Rescue action versus an illegal form. And perhaps Dr. Rushdoony influenced him in that direction. I don't know if you could say he'd saved more lives or fewer lives as a result, but he compromised. And was the, uh, what's the proper determining factor? Maximum lives saved or something bigger even than that? 
And Dr. Rushdoni believes there's always something even bigger than that, because what God requires won't even come in front of that. And, and that might scare us a bit, but uh, the second we make man the measure of all things, we've lost sight of Scripture. And, and now we've yielded the entire principle, and human good is the and then we can might as well throw everything else away. We'll say uh, whatever uh, alleviates human suffering comes first, and therefore massive social programs, a la Marx, might be justified. And a lot of Christians went down this path, and uh, they, once they drank that Kool-Aid, it's all about So Rushdoony sometimes saw that there was a fundamental principle that if you yielded it, there was that slope was not just slippery, you were already halfway down. Okay, Joe Smith writes, In a Christian self-governing population, are church and state not one? They are not one. They're separate spheres, and they have separate ones, a mission of mercy, and others a mission of justice. The uh, church is not to be uh, yield the sword, and the state is not a minister of, of mercy and grace, per se. Now, they're objects of mercy and grace, but they're not a minister of it. So the two functions were divided, and they were divided in Israel between the tribes of Levi and the tribe of Judah, kings from Judah, priests from Levi. And uh, the only exception to the rule was in Christ's own person, because in him, he was a priest upon his throne, Zechariah 6, 12, and 13. Uh, he unites them, and he's a prince, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's both priest and king simultaneously. Uh, and only he qualifies as both a priest and a king simultaneously, him and Melchizedek. And perhaps Melchizedek is Christ in a pre-incarnate uh, form. No one's quite clear on that, but uh, hard to be dogmatic either way. The point is that Christ was the one person who united the two uh, and it says, the council of peace shall be between them, between the two offices of priest and king. They are united and at peace with each other in, in balance in his person. And I kind of left off this thought last week, and I will finish it today, is that priests tend to be merciful but don't have political power. Kings have a lot of power to implement their policies, but rarely had biblical wisdom and mercy yeah. And grace. They tended to be bad. Most of the kings of Israel were terrible. <laughs> and the few that were good, all of them were flawed. All the good ones were flawed. Uh, even Josiah, the best of them, waged preemptive war and, it, and it was killed for it. Uh, and it wasn't the only thing that he was uh, did wrong, but uh, no one was closer and a greater king of Israel than Josiah, and he fell far short. So the main point is what? The kings are powerful and the priests are merciful. So but the priests had the problem that they could not have any power behind their mercy. So what, what does Christ bring to the picture? He unites the two, and now there is infinite power behind mercy. And that's what he brings to the table, and that's what he brings to the world, and that's how he reshapes the world. Because now he restores the three weighty matters, uh, matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith, uh, the three weightiest matters of God's law. So if you say you're an anti-theonomist, it means you oppose justice, mercy, and faith, because those are the three weightiest parts of the law, and everything else hangs on the two great commandments. So uh, Christ becomes, uh, and he's embodied law incarnate in effect, right? And uh, therefore he's able to implement it. So we should not expect to see these uh, two functions operating in the same person. Now, that doesn't mean that in a small town that the pastor can't also function as sheriff, but that's kind of an exception to the rule, and he's going to be torn in certain situations, and it might make for an interesting Netflix series someday if they actually become Christianized. But uh, all I have to say, the, the, those are normally not mixed, and the, the reason is that uh, it's a dangerous combination because a, ma a priest can also bind your conscience with the exposition of the Word of God. You can be convinced that you're in sin by a priest. Imagine if that priest had a gun 
as your civil magistrate. Now we have the force of the civil magistrate behind uh, twisting your conscience in the twi wind. So the separation is there on purpose because you cannot trust a priest if he's got that kind of power. And uh, that, that's a huge deal. <laughs> Checks and balances, if you will, uh, between the two. So the priest, you were supposed to seek knowledge at the lip of the priest. That's out of Malachi 2, 7 or 8, ninth verse. And, uh, and the kings, of course, were supposed to rule for the Lord, not for themselves. Um, and both sides failed. You know, they, the priests were on the take. They were, um, Hosea 4, 8, they were um, eating up the sins of the people because they benefited from the sins of the people. They wouldn't correct the sins of the people. So when both king and priest are sold out and uh, gone down the pike, what do you do? Well, Christ comes in to be the true shepherd, the true gate by which we are to enter. And therefore, uh, current kings are to kiss the sun lest to be angry and they perish in the way. So, uh, Psalm 2 now applies in its fullness. <clears throat> well, I'm sorry we got one so long today, but uh, it was a good session. Appreciate everyone uh, tuning in. Had a little big group today. Uh, remember, there's a Book of the Month Club coming up. Uh, in the first Monday of May, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and uh, on Freud, which will be discussed by Mark Rushduni and uh, Andrea uh, Schwartz. And send your questions here to in advance if you want them answered in advance to ask.calcedon.edu. Pray for us, keep us in your um, uh, remembrance, uh, especially as we close the year out pretty soon. Uh, remember us in your giving for the work that we do, uh, such as it is. Uh, because what we do is limited by um, your giving. Dr. Rushdie would always say, you know, we operate in terms of what God's people allow us to do. So to that end, uh, we rely on you, and uh, we keep our nose in the Bible and uh, try to explain it the best that we can, because the entering in of his word bringeth light. So to the extent that we can assist that process or be part of it, and uh, that's what we're all about. So blessings to all. We will see you all next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.